Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, we talk to New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy about the World Cup Final coming to East Rutherford in 2026. The last World Cup Final, which was Argentina-France, had a television audience of one and a half billion. Uh, and all those eyes will be on East Rutherford, New Jersey on July 19th, 2026. We'll have another episode of Inside Newark with Council President LaMonica McIver. I know when I brought my folks first home, you're like, oh my God, let me call somebody to fix this toilet. And no, no one's coming to fix the toilet. It's on you. And I'll chat with eight-time Grammy Award-winning pianist, composer, and educator Arturo O'Farrell who is participating in the Paco de Lucia Legacy Festival in New York City. We need to know uh, where our music comes from, and so much of my music comes from Andalusia, from Spain, from the tavernas, the, uh, the uh, bodegas. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. On the latest edition of WBGO's call-in show, Ask Governor Murphy, the World Cup final coming to the stadium in East Rutherford in 2026 was a hot topic of discussion. Governor Phil Murphy spoke to host Nancy Solomon about the excitement surrounding the recent announcement. As governor, but also as a big soccer fan, uh, so you must be pretty happy about this. Oh, over the moon. Uh, It's a big deal, and, and to give you an idea of how big a deal this is, Nance said. I think you and I have talked about it. Sunday Super Bowl had an odd television audience, I think of 125 million or 130, and it set the all-time record. The world, the last World Cup final, which was Argentina-France, had a television audience of one and a half billion. Uh, and all those eyes will be on East Rutherford, New Jersey, on July 19th, 2026. It's one of eight games we got, five First round games, two knockouts, and then the final. We we did it with New York City. I can't say enough good things about Eric Adams and his partnership. We don't get it without New York City, and New York City doesn't get it without us. And uh, it was a great partnership, and it came right down to it. Uh, we felt decent at the very end, but we didn't have any official heads up. So when we finally heard it, to say that we were relieved and elated would understate the case. So pull back the curtain a little bit on this one for us. Like, what exactly did it take on your part, on the part of Mayor Adams or Governor Hochul? Like, what goes on behind the scene to make something like this happen? I know Governor Hochul was supportive, but on this one, the partnership was between New Jersey and New York City. So Eric was the, the key guy. So you make, first of all, we've been leading up to this. The U.S., Canada, and Mexico won the right to host the World Cup uh, several years ago. And so the question then was, where will the games be played? Who will be the host communities? And so we immediately started pitching with New York City. Um, we did a an initial pitch a couple of years ago, uh, which was really stunning, showing off New York and New Jersey. We got Robert De Niro to narrate it, which was pretty cool. Uh, and so there's been a process that's gone on for a couple of years, and it's a combination of it, in-person meetings. Do the principals take this seriously? Both the city and New Jersey committed to support, whether it was some amount of financial support or in-kind services, such as law enforcement, by example. What's the fan experience going to look like? So you you submit not just a video, but renderings of how we're going to use the Hudson River, what what Liberty State Park might look like or Central Park or Prospect Park as 
as uh, fan fests. Um, the stadium is important. Um, and also, I think, lastly, the last thing they needed to sense is that it wasn't just important to the mayor and myself, but that the broader community, particularly the so-called titans of industry on both sides of the Hudson, wanted to see this happen here. And that includes the owners of the Jets and Giants. And everybody was fantastic, uh, whether it's the Mara uh, Johnson Tisch families, whether it's the CEOs who sat at the table with us, uh, the stadium operation, uh, the community support. Legacy is a big deal to FIFA. It's a big deal for us. Diversity is a big deal. How do you get things legacy-wise like soccer pitches built in communities that otherwise wouldn't be able to have them or afford them? What's this going to do to little boys and girls uh, that will lead to you know tens if not hundreds of thousands of kids who will participate in the sport in their life when they otherwise might not have? So it's a, it's a combination of all that. I don't think there's one magic wand, to be honest with you. You can hear the entire Ask Governor Murphy show at WBGO.org, where the governor also addresses how NJ Transit is prepared for the mass infusion of traffic as a result of the World Cup final being played in New Jersey. Traveling down the turnpike, heading for the shore. Thought just then occurred to me I never thought before I've been a lot of places Seen pictures of the rest But of all the places I can't think of I like Jersey best Betting halls and shopping malls And good old Rutgers U 47 shoe stores line Route 22 the Meadowlands, the root beer stands, Main Street hack and sack. I may leave for a week or two, but I'm always coming back. The Vinelands and the Vinelands, Seaside Heights, Margate. You can have Miami, I love the Garden State. I've been a lot of places, seen pictures of the rest. But of all the places I can think of, I like Jersey best. It's time for another edition of Inside Newark with Council President LaMonica McIver. Council President, great to see you as always. Good to see you as well, Doug. I'm so excited to be back for another edition. I wanted to talk about home ownership in Newark. There are a couple of things that have happened over the past couple of weeks that are extremely interesting. One is a program that deals with people for $1 get the opportunity through a lottery and the Neighborhood Assistance Corporation of America program to get a piece of property that is not usable right now, but they can put thousands of dollars in renovations through the money that they get. Now, seven people just been selected for this lottery, and so that program is underway. But there's also voucher programs that I know that you want to talk about as well. It's part of uh, something that we've been doing here in the city of North, especially around, um, you know, trying to generate home ownership. I mean, definitely, you know, having affordable rents. Yes, that's important too. all of those things are important. But what's better than home ownership? Um, I think that it creates generational wealth. Um, it helps, you know, change the dynamics of people's lives. Some people dream all their lives about, you know, having and owning a home. And so to be able to provide this, to have this new initiative that we're doing, um, you know, here in the city of North, it's very exciting. 
Um, one of the programs that we run currently right now, we kind of give away homes um, similar to the $1 lottery is we have our Section 8 um, our Section 8 home ownership program, where basically um, residents who currently have Section 8 can use their Section 8 vouchers for a mortgage, basically. Um, the program is ran through Invest North. Um, we partner, of course, with NACA as well for the financial um, piece of it, making sure that we're doing counseling and different things to get people prepared on what home ownership means, because many people don't know. I know when I brought my first, first home, you're like, oh my God, let me call somebody to fix this toilet. And no, no one's coming to fix the toilet. It's on you. You know, those are things that take, you know, training and it takes a mindset of change. And so we, we put a lot of, uh, you know, emphasis in that as well of having workshops to teach people on how to be a good homeowner. What does that mean? What does home ownership um, really mean? It's more than just getting the house and having the house. It's how do you maintain it and keep up with it? So that program is where we go and we kind of, we kind of do this like, you know, first sight of the house for the people who are getting it. I mean, you have to really be there to experience it. I mean, them walking into a refurbished, renovated, you know, the last book that we did, we had partnered with a, a player from the New Jersey Giants who actually furnished the home for the family through Bob's Furniture. And I mean, to walk into that. I mean, just see the excitement, the family, the tears, the tears of joy and happiness. It's just something you cannot, you know, really compare to. It's actually one of the, this is like one of the best programs and one of my favorite programs that have kind of happened underneath my leadership over the council um, over the last couple of years. And it's, it's just exciting and it's amazing to see people become homeowners. Uh, this new installment that you mentioned about the dollar lottery, this is something that we look to continue to do. Um, we are starting with different portions. So we did seven families uh, the first time. And so the second time we'll be having another set of families. Um, but it's really how we kind of get these properties available, right? Some of them can be recycling. Um, you know, some of them are vacant for a long time. So there's, there's a lot of moving parts to it um, to get it done. But we're excited about it. Um, they were excited, uh, the, the residents that were there. And uh, definitely, of course, it comes with stipulations. There was a lot of, um, you know, process that they had to go through with NACA to be qualified um, and to go through the process. A couple of months ago, we had held the four-day retreat where basically people can come down to Robert Tree Hotel. They had to, you know, sign up. They would go to the retreat and you had to go through like a lot of financial, you know, uh, background, a lot of paperwork. I mean, just like you go through with any, you know, house that you're buying, right? It's a lot of work, especially when you get to the closing. Um, you know, they had to go through a process of it and we had hundreds of people um, showing up to try to qualify, you know, to try to, you know, be able to, you know, get this house. We also want to make sure you can, you know, afford to stay there, that it all works out, that everything's lined up. We want to put you with a financial advisor who can show you how to do such. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's a process, but it's well worth it because our, our number one goal is longevity, right? It's to make sure we're not just giving away a house and having this dollar lottery and that's it. We want to make sure we put you in a home you're able to stay there, you know what you're doing, you know how to manage it, you know how to manage finances, and, and you're able to, you know, really enjoy it. You know, there's the other side, and I don't know if you have seen it, but uh, a lot of young people today don't even think about buying a home anymore. They're, they're, they're in uh, apartments, and some of them seem to be extremely happy with that style of life. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I can understand it. I mean, the convenience. I mean, I was 
that used to be me, right? When I was younger, I was like, oh, I just love being in an apartment. You know, I want to be in an apartment here, there. You know, when I was traveling to go work in South Jersey, I was, you know, getting an apartment closer to there and, you know, commuting and doing things of that nature. So it makes sense because a lot of young people are transient in some cases. And sometimes a house means, you know, permanent. It means, you know, stable. It means I'm going to be here for a while. And that's why, like, when I bought my first house, I knew I was, like, ready to do so. I was, you know, having my daughter at the time. And I'm like, I want to just be stable. I'm, I want to be back in my community. I want to be here, you know. And that was that for me. Like, even before, I, you know, I owned my house before I was a councilwoman. Um, but that was one of the choices that I made, you know, to be closer to family and want to have something a little stable. But then I think also, too, there are some young people out there who would love to own a house. They just, you know, believe that they can't afford it. Some people can afford it. Um, you know, my sister was just talking about that recently, about how, you know, you can literally, you can get approved to pay $2,500 in rent. But when you go to the bank to get a $2,500 mortgage, you know, to get approved for that, they're getting denied. You know, there's something wrong with that. Like, you know, bigger than me, you sitting here having this conversation. But how is that even like, possible? like, I can pay $3,000 in rent for a studio somewhere in Jersey City, you know, or wherever, but I can't get a $3,000 loan, you know, a $3,000 a month loan for 25, 30 year, you know, home, you know, it's just, it's those types of things are, are troubling. And those are some of the things that you see nationwide people discussing, because once again, we're still in a conversation of how rents are so expensive. There was just, you know, new articles put out last week from NPR, um, and a couple of other folks who were talking about the how most Americans are spending most of their income on rent. Literally more than 50% of folks' income, monthly income, is going to rent. I mean, that's, you know, that's a problem. And many, you know, people are seeing that. They're feeling it. They're feeling it in their pockets. They're feeling it in their everyday life. It's stressful. You mentioned how one of the benefits of the program of meshing home ownership and then taking care of some, you know, properties that, that are, are eyesores or dilapidated. And how do you see the city of Newark right now? Has there been a big improvement in trying to take away some of those uh, those properties and buildings that, that just don't have anybody in them? Absolutely. We've made a lot of progress in, you know, transforming areas and taking old lots that have been vacant for decades, um, you know, and turning them into something. Um, I was just saying, having a tour earlier, you know, last week in some of the number block areas, like up in the ward, um, taking a look at some of a lot of the pocket vacant lots we have. So we have a lot of that too. Um, and, you know, some of the lots are just big enough for two to three or, you know, one family. They're not that large, but they're good for, you know, a solid house, you know, in a particular area that they are. And we've had a lot of movement, you know, in some of those areas too. We've added, you know, we have small developers kind of working on some of those pieces, small minority developers where they're adding, you know, two to three families and some of the empty, you know, vacant uh, lots that we had. Um, but we do have more work to do, you know, right? I think we had a lot of vacants um, here in the city. There was sometimes where, you know, part of mostly Springfield Avenue and, you know, other locations have been vacant for decades, especially since the riots. Um, you know, business storefronts vacant, and, and we've had a lot of progress in changing that around, but we still do have a couple of critical areas that we have to focus on, and we have to, you know, work on driving development, but 
many people sometimes look at it and they think it's like of a snap of a finger. And it isn't. Some of the things are very hard. They're wrapped up in legal situations. You know, you get people who buy property. You know, sometimes people too think that the city owns like every piece of land in a city. We don't. <laughs> so sometimes when you see some of these, you know, crazy buildings and they're vacant for a while, sometimes the city isn't even the owner you know, of the buildings. It has a private owner and we've taken them to court and we're battling the legal process and going through all of that. But that's not something that's a snap of a finger. It takes time. It takes a lot of, you know, back and forth into court. Um, you know, and even after that, like, you know, the city's not just able to just snap a finger and take someone's property from them and give it to someone else. It just doesn't work like that. Nor can the city determine who people are selling their properties to, you know, or if they're giving it, selling their properties to major corporations and things of that nature, you know, that changes the dynamics of the community. Those are just things that, you know, we naturally just can't do because capitalism is still real and it is still, you know, here in America and all over the world. So, you know, those those are some of the challenges. But I think that we, we do have more work to do, but we've made a lot of progress and I'm extremely proud about that. It's why we have Inside Newark to get the inside information on how things work behind the scenes. Yeah, it's not as easy uh, as it seems, but Council President LaMonica McIver continues to work hard at it. Hey, people are enjoying Inside Newark. We're thankful that you've joined us for another episode, and we'll see you next month. Thank you, Doug. It is always my pleasure to come up here and chat with you. It's my favorite time of the month, and I look forward to seeing you guys back for the next edition. Please make sure that you're sharing this, you know, uh, information sharing our, um, you know, our broadcast that we put out about Inside Newark because it's important for people to, you know, learn more about Newark and learn and, and know about what's happening. So stay informed. You can also see my entire conversation with Newark Council President LaMonica McIver on the WBGO Facebook page. Paco de Lucia Festival runs in New York from February 20th through the 24th. Various venues, and this is such an exciting event. Greatest tribute to the flamenco guitar luncheon ever staged in the U.S. And this has events in Carnegie Hall, Town Hall, Symphony Space, and other venues. And joining us is eight-time Grammy Award winner, pianist, composer, and educator, Arturo O'Farrell. Great to see you. It's such a privilege to be here to talk to you, Doug, and to be on BGO, which is such an incredibly important resource for me, for my life, for the people of the city of New York and Newark, and uh, to be talking about one of the greatest uh, flamenco guitarists, uh, if you can even contain Paco de Lucia to just that title, uh, because as you probably know, Paco de Lucia collaborated with all kinds of people, including Chick Corea, and of course, I mean, the, the, his legacy goes on and on and on and on. Uh, the, the man was a, a, an incredible inspiration to so many people. If we hear the piano going on in the background, you're at the new school right now where you teach. <laughs> a little bassy, uh, uh, a little bassy for you. <laughs> you, got, you gotta love it, you gotta love it, Arturo. And you are one of 30 plus artists who will be performing 
for this wonderful festival, uh, it's it's an easy question, first of all. Why did you want to get involved? Well, first of all, um, I have I, been performing with Spanish artists for a very long time. I've been to Spain many, many times. I, I did a wonderful concert at, uh, at Town Hall with uh, a Bichuela family that included some of the greatest names in, in flamenco. Flamenco is a source of nutrition for jazz, certainly for Afro-Cuban jazz, and certainly for all Afro-Latin jazz. Um, and, and I mean, the, the trail of improvisational uh, practice really uh, goes as far as the Middle East. And so the oud becomes the biwela, becomes the harana, becomes Jim Hall. <laughs> is is something that I, I hold so sacred to me, because we need to know uh, where our music comes from, and so much of my music comes from Andalusia, from Spain, from the 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 tavernas, the uh, the uh, bodegas, from the places in Spain where great music, great food, great wine is made, and 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 it's all it's all reflected in this incredible concert legacy of Paco de Lucia. Obviously, growing up with your legendary father, do you remember the first time you heard Paco? I remember the first time I heard Paco was probably when I was around 14, and it wasn't at Chico's house. I think it was a friend of mine who said, hey, check this out. This is called flamenco. And the first uh, music I heard was not Paco de Lucia. That was a little later. The first music I heard was El Camarón. El Camarón de la Isla was another famous, famous, old, much older uh, flamenco guitarist. Uh, and then soon after that, you know, of course, I was introduced to Paco de Lucia. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to miss the direct line of improvisational prowess that is part of the flamenco tradition to what I do every day as a jazz artist, as a Latin jazz artist, as whatever you want to, you know, whatever... Uh, label you want to put on me, but it, it is directly related to what is practiced on a regular basis in Spain. He is one of the first artists really to take flamenco into the classical and jazz categories, correct? He is. He is indeed. He's, uh, he has, a you know, of course, his uh, work with other guitarists and other, uh, uh, and with Trick Korea, as I said earlier, was a, was a very, very bold and forward-looking vision. And I don't think that it was a stretch, though. At the end of the day, I think when you listen to Paco de Lucia and you listen to other artists, uh, Chimo Tebar of Spain, uh, uh, Alex Conde of Spain, um, they, they very much practice the, the tradition that was begun by Paco de Lucia of straying into all the waters that one can, which is something, as you know, I, I deeply believe in. We don't, we're not meant to be uh, put in lanes and, and stuck in, in ruts. One of the exciting things about this festival, not only just the artists, but those who have played with Paco and the newer artists who are playing from Linko use the music and, and things like that. So it's a wonderful combination, isn't it? Yes, it is a wonderful combination. And I mean, we have some incredible artists. We have a pianist and arranger, Alex Conde, myself, uh, incredible flamenco guitarist, Antonio Rey. This is for the Symphony Space concert that we're doing with uh with this project, the vocalist Chonchi Heredia, incredible harmonica player Antonio Serrano, a flamenco by Laura Carime Amaya, and Brazilian percussionist Ruben Dantas. And we're all doing this to celebrate the music and the compositions and the work of one of the great masters of, of Spain. That night at Symphony Space, and you start to play the music, what do you think is going to be the first visual that pops into Arturo Farrell's head? 
I personally find flamenco dancing inseparable from flamenco playing. So if you have you've ever seen flamenco dancing, straight back dancing with the tapping and the castanets and the and the abaniqua, the fan, that's the first image that pops into my brain. It's this incredible, rich visual history, visual uh, 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 cultural heritage that we have in Spain that is just it's and 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 by the way I think this is really important to note that the art of playing flamenco is in is inseparable from the art of dancing flamenco and I feel like sometimes we lose that as jazz musicians we forget that yes you can dance to Thelonious Monk you can dance to Miles Davis and in fact you should we should never lose this 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 connection of moving your feet with hearing things that touch your heart and your mind. Obviously, the finger style of Paco de Lucia is, is you know, something that he is known for. Can you tell us, someone who is a wonderful musician like yourself, what that magic was? Well, it's funny because there's a word that, that's very specific to that style. It's, it, it, it's, it's a word that means picador. It, it's picados, finger style runs. And if it's a very fast and a very fluent style. The person that comes to mind from my, 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 my moment is Chimo Tebar of Spain, who's in some ways really uh, an heir apparent to the tradition of, of Paco de Lucia. First of all, he plays... Uh, in that picador style, he plays that really very, very, very important fast finger runs. But he's also heavily influenced by George Benson, Pat Metheny. So if you want to see a, an interpretation of a, a guitarist who's not stuck just in one vein, but who really thinks, then I, I, I might Google Chimo, X-I-M-O, Tebar, T-E-B-A-R. And he's, a, he, I mean, amongst many others, because there are many others, uh, Pepe Carmona, there's a bunch of different uh, contemporaries of the world of flamenco that I think are, are you can't, Antonio Ray. I mean, it, it's just, it's, 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 it's a style that is very, 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 very much modern and very important now, even as it, has, it was begun, you know, decades and decades and decades ago. As an educator, when you think about this performance that you're going to be for Symphony Space for the, the Legacy Festival in New York, how important is it that students of yours, younger people, a younger audience is exposed to the music of Banco de Lucia? It's interesting because, you know, I'm also on the faculty of the UCLA Herb Albert School of Music. So I get to see a lot of young people and all the great young minds. I can't tell you, I have some students from both coasts that blow me away with their, in, they're inspiring to me. And the one thing I will say to them is open your mind to everything. Open your mind to Bengali music. Open your mind to flamenco music. I would say that we've begun to understand how global jazz is. We've begun to understand not only that it's global in its origins, but it's global in its reach. 
And if you're not prepared to be a musician of the future, if you're gonna just play one thing or another, one style, or you're relegating yourself to what you understand, because this is the thing I do say to my students. I say, don't just relegate to yourself to that which you understand. Embrace that which you don't understand. Embrace that which you don't think you're good at. Experiment in styles that you're not familiar with. And I would say to every single jazz guitarist out there, listen, Listen to Baco de Lucia, listen to flamenco, and try and learn from it. You may not be able to play it, but there's such a wealth of information, certainly technical information, but also in terms of scales, in terms of Phrygian modes, in terms of macam, in terms of note bending, in terms of, of music that really comes from all over the world that finds its nexus in Spain. It is, it is a message like I can, you know, a lot of a lot of things that I do. But the thing I'm most proud of is the fact that I see jazz as a universal truth. We look forward to your performance at Symphony Space as part of the Paco de Lucia Legacy Festival. Once again, the whole festival runs from February 20th through the 24th in New York City. And my guest is eight-time Grammy Award winner. Arturo Ferro, great to see you, and we look forward to the concert. Thanks for joining us. So good to see you, Doug. So good to be part of BGO family. For more information about the concerts in New York City, you can go to PacoDeLuciaLegacy.com. You can also see the rest of my conversation with Arturo O'Farrell on the WBGO Facebook page. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz and blues station, WBGO and WBGO.org.